You turn in your copy of God's Word this morning to Matthew chapter 2, I'm continuing our series, just walking through the book of Matthew, and today we're going to draw to the close of the second chapter. We've been in several accounts here in the, first, the beginning of Matthew that, that you often hear at Christmas time, and we are studying them in the middle of the year, in the summer, and that's okay, right? That's okay, and, and a couple times I've been singing Christmas music in the middle of the year. I don't know if that's allowed or not, but... We have been, I guess. So, Matthew 2. Let's read Matthew chapter 2, verse 13 to 23 together this morning. Matthew's account in the Word of God says this. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. We're going to kind of approach this text, maybe you might say, from two different angles. We're going to look at two two vantage points as we look in this chapter this morning, and in chapter 2, verses 13 to 23, the first of these angles is I want us to see a display of God's providential and super natural work. We've seen this in, in chapter 1 and all the way up through 2 verse 12 and, and we just need to draw our attention to it again this morning. But first we see that God continues to work in a supernatural way. We see as we've talked about that, that there's no space in Matthew for a view of God that confines him to the natural order. And so if you just look at the text and you, you look at verse 13, you see that it says an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. You see in verse 19 that again an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. And then in verse 22 we read again that he is warned in a dream. God is working in extraordinary ways. He's working in supernatural ways. But as a side note, what, what, is, what, is, what do Joseph and, and Mary do? Do they respond in, in some extraordinary, amazing way? No, they, they simply get up and they leave and they do something quite ordinary. 
So, so, so God works in a supernatural way, but he calls them to exhibit faith and obedience in, in quite ordinary ways. They, they get up, they leave. There's really nothing extraordinary about that except for the fact that they obey. So they obey, in an extraordinary, uh, obey an extraordinary God in a very ordinary way. And we see that this truth that God works in, mysterious, or in supernatural ways, we see it throughout Jesus' life. You know, John 1, 14, when, when we read about the Word becoming flesh, it says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we did what? We beheld His glory. We beheld His glory as He worked in supernatural ways throughout His life, declaring that He was indeed the Son of God, God in the flesh. And so we see that God continues to work in a supernatural way. And we also see here that God continues to work in a providential way. As we've talked about already, we, there, there's no space in Matthew's gospel for a view of God that removes him from working in history to accomplish his plan. There's no space to, to talk about a God that is not intimately involved in our lives. He is indeed intimately involved in our lives. He is carrying out his plan. He is working to accomplish his purposes. And so we read in verse 15, this was what? This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. He's quoting Hosea 11.1 there. We see God is continuing to work out his plan. And remember, what is Matthew doing? We, we've talked about this over and over and over again. We're going to remember this, right? That Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. And so as such, he is continually drawing their attention to the Old Testament to say this is the prophesied Messiah. And so God is working, he is providentially working to carry out his plan. We see that in verse 15, we see it again in verse 17, where we read, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, a, a reference to Jeremiah 31, verse 15. So again, he's bringing us back, saying, listen, this was prophesied, this is something that God foretold, this is what God had planned, and he is working it out, he is carrying out his good plan and good purpose. We come again to verse 23, and we read a similar statement but not quite the same statement the similar statement is this he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene now why do we point that out just briefly the reason I point that out to you is because it's a different it's different than saying spoken by the prophet and he's referring to a particular prophet here Matthew is just kind of generically saying that this was spoken by the prophets, that the whole of what the prophets taught is here seen in Jesus being from Nazareth. If you look in the Old Testament, there's no particular statement, a clear black and white statement by one prophet that Jesus would be born from or come from Nazareth, that he would be a Nazarene. So what Matthew is doing here is he's just generally saying this is to fulfill what was foretold by the, the general consensus of the prophets about the Messiah. Well, what did they say? They, they talked about the fact that he would be humble, that he would be unrecognized. He would even be despised and rejected. If you look in Zechariah 9, 9 and Isaiah 53, 1 to 3, we read statements that, that the Messiah would be humble, unrecognized, despised, and rejected by men. Nazareth was such an insignificant city that Matthew has, feels the weight of having to say a city called Nazareth. He doesn't just say, hey, he's from Nazareth, right? It's just like if I said he's from Ano, some people in here would go, what? Right? And I always have to say, well, it's a community called and give some type of designation so you know what I'm talking about. Right? And it's the same thing. Matthew knows the insignificance. The Nazareth was looked down upon. Right? What did, do you remember what Nathaniel said in, in John 1.46 when he's told that the Messiah has come and he's a Nazarene? What is his remark? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? 
right? He's despised, rejected. And so the whole prophecy talks about this Messiah who would come, who was unrecognized, who was despised, who was rejected, and one coming from Nazareth would be held as such. So we see God working in a supernatural way, in a providential way, and we see that here the Father is meticulously seeing to the plan of redemption. He is providentially providing for his people. He's carrying out his purpose. Now, why is that important for us to hit again and again and time and time and time again? Well, the reason it's important is because you need to know this. The same God who is able to work supernaturally then is the same God that you bow before in prayer today. So when we pray for the persecuted church, we are praying to the God who can supernaturally work to bring about his plan and his purpose. We're praying to the, today the same God who guides his people just the way he did in this time. So when he guides the God that we read about guiding his people out of harm's way, around harm's way to other countries, and then bringing them back is the same God that you and I pray to today, seeking guidance in our lives. The same God who was faithful to keep his words that he spoke to the prophets is the same God who is faithful to keep his word when he says that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. He is the God who said that and who will do it. The same God that accomplished his plans then is the same God who is working together for the good of his people to accomplish his plans now. We may not understand, we may not know, we may not have a vision of what tomorrow looks like or five days down the road or five months down the road or five years down the road. We may have no idea. But we can trust that God is faithful to be who he says he is and to do what he says he will do. God is faithful. So today we rest in God's faithfulness and we trust in God's ability. So that's the first angle. The second angle that I want us to look at is a picture of the tragedy that awaits when life becomes expendable. The tragedy that awaits when life becomes expendable. Look at verse 16. In 16 we read, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. Says he became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under. Herod became furious. What, what, is it, what is it in your life that can happen? You're going to be having a great day, right? Life, going about life and, and things are going great and something happens and just boom, just like that. You're angry, you're furious. What, what is it? Do you, do you have those things in your life? I would say most of you are like, yep, you're nodding. Some of you are smiling right now. Um, some of you are looking at me like you're crazy. Well, you need to just turn to the person sitting beside you that you came with this morning and say, what is it? And they can probably identify it, right? They can tell you. If you can't tell it, they can, right? I've learned that in the United States, the, the car seems to be this place where a lot of us enjoy getting angry, right? It's something that somebody can do something and boom, we're angry, right? Here's what I've learned about that. And in my life, when, when I tend to get angry quickly about something, is it's typically motivated by someone infringing on me. And someone infringing on me or cramping my style or, or bothering what, what you might call the kingdom of Todd, right? The kingdom of self. If you step on the toes of my kingdom, then I'm upset. And, and the car seems to be a very tangible identifier of that kingdom, right? I get in my car and it's like I have a little... Uh, boundary around and this is my kingdom don't violate it don't touch it and definitely don't cut me off or tailgate me right I mean this is my kingdom 
And it's easy to be having a good day and all of a sudden you get mad. Why? Because I'm focused on me, self. What do you see here from Herod? Herod becomes furious. Why does he become furious? Because what? Because he was tricked. Herod is focused on himself. Herod's not focused on, on Rome. He's not focused on, on the people. He's focused on himself. He got tricked. He got duped. And he's upset about it. He's angry. Here, here's the principle we have to learn this morning, is that, that when we are driven by guarding and advancing the kingdom of self, we easily run into sin. We easily run into sin. When we're, when we're totally focused on the kingdom of self, then we can easily be led into sin. Herod, Herod is so engulfed in himself that the lives of others become expendable. He's so focused on himself. You remember when we talked last week, we talked about how Herod was really, I mean, just a vicious man. A vicious man who, who killed his own family members. In fact, I shared Friday night with a group at our house. He, he was so, um, so malicious and, and vicious that on his death, he ordered that when he died, that um, one child from every family must be murdered, must be killed, put to death. Now, they didn't carry that out because Herod was dead. But that's the spirit of this man, so engulfed and so focused on himself that life around him, the life of others, became expendable. Listen, tragically, we see a similar situation in our own day. We see a culture where life is becoming more and more something that is viewed as expendable, something of little value. Our, our news feeds are filled daily, almost, of mass killings, of terrorism, people dying at the hands of people focused on the kingdom of self. We read and see the news reports of human trafficking as the vulnerable are taking advantage of globally and dealt as pieces of property. But perhaps one of the most sobering Areas that we see how life is viewed as being expendable is that of abortion. You know, since 1973, over 60 million abortions have occurred in the United States. In 2019 alone, 889 abortions occurred. What's the price of life? A mere $500 average. That's all it is. If you follow the news you see that in the last week two weeks our national budget presented for 2022 does not include the Hyde Amendment as such that means our national budget would fund abortions I, I understand the difference between Herod's mass murder and an abortion I do but I also understand the similarity both are driven by a high view of the kingdom of self, of someone involved, and a low view of the lives and the dignity of others. Babies are aborted daily in the name of choice, convenience, and a number of other self-centered decisions and reasons. We, we need to know and we need to understand and remember this morning that love for a baby, a child, does not lead to death, but it leads to life. Love leads to life. Love does not usher in death. It doesn't. It doesn't. 
And so the question that I ask when I look at this and I read about Herod and, and the moment where he becomes so furious that he orders the death of all the male children, two and under, is how can life become that expendable? How can one find themselves in a place where he has no problem with the death of a child? How could we find ourselves in that place? How could we wake up one morning and find ourselves where we just, we, it's not a big deal, it's okay, it's, it's about choice. I would say there's three ways this happens. The first is that there's this growing focus on the kingdom of self. A growing focus on the kingdom of self, that, that the more focus we get on ourselves, the less we value the good and the well-being of those around us. And the more that we think about me, the more that I'm focused on what I want, the more I'm willing to act in ways that don't benefit those around me because I'm motivated by just what I want. It's the fact that something that I desire or want can get to a point where it becomes a ruling desire where I will do anything to maintain or get what I want. In that, it may be my convenience, it may be my life, my comfort, I don't know, but, but it's something that will rule us such that we are willing to see others suffer at our expense. This is contrary to the teaching of Scripture. You, you understand that the teaching of Scripture, Matthew twenty two thirty nine 39, says to love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, Philippians 2, 3 and 4, we see do nothing from rivalry or conceit or, or selfish ambition, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. We, we know, many of you here know the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10. You, you know the story of, of one who comes and he selflessly serves and, and cares for another who's identified as his neighbor. It's the, the example that Jesus gives of who is my neighbor. Well, this is the neighbor. And why is he exemplified? It's because he's the one who shows mercy. And Jesus' response is what? You go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. But Herod here is motivated by selfish desires, and we find it detestable. I don't think anybody, I would say there's no one in this room who would look and go read that and, and go, you know, that's not a big deal. That's totally okay that Herod did that. I, I, would, I would say, I would guess that everybody in here today would say that is unacceptable. That is an atrocity. Well, surely, surely we would see the same self-motivating factors that were present in Herod to be wrong when we witness the senseless acts of violence today, ranging from mass killings to abortions. Surely we would see that. The second thing that happens, the second thing that leads to life becoming expendable is this, the absence of a moral foundation. The absence of a moral foundation, we just lose our moral foundation. You see, when we're focused on the kingdom of self, we push out who? We push out God, the kingdom of God. And so the more that we focus on the kingdom of self, we push away God, and this erodes our moral foundation. I'll never forget in middle school, we, our science, I think it was our eighth grade science class, we came in one day and our science teacher has set up an erosion table. I don't know if anybody's ever seen an erosion table. It was a big table filled with dirt. And it had, he had hooked it up to the hose on the, the sink, right? And you turn it on, and we would watch it erode down into a bucket, and then he'd get the bucket and empty it into the sink, right? It was neat. We got to see erosion taking place right before our eyes. Well, we decided that it would be great that when we went to lunch, we turned it on and watched erosion while we were gone. And so we turned the water on and left, and Mr. Hedrick took us to lunch, and we ate lunch, and we came back, and it had eroded, all right? 
It had eroded into the entire floor of the classroom, right? We thought it was grand until Mr. Hedrick walked in. He didn't think it was grand, right? That, that's what happens in our society. We don't think much of it. You don't think much of it. It's just a little thing to push away God. It's a little thing. I'm just focused on myself. This is what I need in this moment. This is what I want in this moment. And then all of a sudden we look and our entire moral foundation has been eroded. When you reject the existence of God and you claim that morality is determined by some cultural conscience, a majority opinion, or that it continues to develop and evolve in our society, then your moral foundation is going to erode. It's going to erode. There's no foundation. There is not this cultural conscience or, or a majority opinion that's going to establish a moral foundation. Our, our moral foundations as a culture are not developing and evolving. If you think they are, I would ask you, just think about what you see on the news. Just think about it. Use your head. Do you really think, <laughs> do you really think the morality of our society is improving? Really? Well, that's, that's odd that it would coincide with this rejection of God. You see more and more people who when they say, what religion are you? They just say, none. And so the, the number of people who say, none, that I do not worship anyone, but yet the number or, or the, the, the depth of depravity and the lack of morality just continues to rise too. The two rise hand in hand. Why? Because our moral foundation has been stripped out from under us. We have no moral foundation. What we need to realize is that absolute truth and morality exist outside of us in the person of God. It is not determined by me. It's not determined by you. It's determined by God. He is the source of truth and morality. We see this all throughout Scripture, that, that we see that God is the source of truth and morality. We see it in 1 Peter 1.15. We read, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. So the reason that we live holy is because he is holy. In Luke 6.36, we read, be merciful even as your father is merciful. He's the precedent. He's the standard because he is merciful. 1 John 4.19, why do we love? We love because he first loved us. The Sermon on the Mount, we'll get there in a, in, in a little bit. Matthew 5, 48, we read that you must be perfect. Why? Because your Father is perfect. Your Heavenly Father is perfect. He is the precedent. He is the foundation. He is what drives us to be who we are because of who he is. In Ephesians 5, 2, we read the same thing. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. God is our moral foundation. He is is good and he does good we read in psalms 119 68 he is our moral foundation we need to return and cling to and stand firm on the moral foundation that is rooted in a holy righteous good perfect god who created all things good because he is good he is the lord of all creation he is the truth john 14 6 says he is the truth he doesn't just testify to it he is the truth the third way life becomes expendable, the third thing that occurs leads to that is when we lose a right view of who man is, an absence of a right view of who man is. Both the tragedy that we read of in Matthew chapter 2 and that of abortion, human trafficking, mass killings in our day, they are rooted in, in the reality 
of a culture divorced from a biblical foundation of who man is. There's two things that are pertinent to our discussion from Scripture that talks about and identifies who man is. One, one, One is that man is created in God's image. It's the verse that we meditated on before the sermon. Genesis 1.27, that God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female, he created them. It's the, it's the passage that Pastor Ricky read in the time of hearing the word, Psalm 139, that talks about us being fearfully, wonder, fearfully and wonderfully made, being knit together in our mother's womb. That God is intimately involved in that process in creating us and fashioning us. You know what that means? That means that every person, every person has intrinsic dignity, value, and worth from conception. From conception. Because why? Because he's made, or she is made in God's image. We're created, we're fashioned by God. This dignity and value is bestowed upon each person in the womb as a beautiful creation of God. And this means that we value the unborn because the location of in the womb or out of the womb does not determine whether one's a person. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're inside the womb or you're outside the womb. You are a person. You're created in the image of God. And that leads to the second thing that Scripture teaches, that person, the personhood of a child is from conception. You understand that the debate about abortion rages around what defines a person. I would, a very simple question is just to ask any pregnant mother sitting here today, are you carrying a fetus or are you carrying a baby? Are you carrying a person or just a lump of flesh? That's what the debate rages around is, is when, does, when does one reach personhood status? What establishes that one is a person? What brings about that status? Is it, is it when they're independent? Is it when they're capable of making moral decisions? Is it a particular age that they get to? When? What establishes a person? See, our our culture is separated. The idea of a body and a person, a body and a soul. But Scripture keeps the two together and maintains the two. And it doesn't matter if you're in the beginning of life or end of life. A person is a person. So we value life in the womb, and we value life at the end of life, and it doesn't matter if the person is is mentally capable or not. We value life because life is life, and that is a person. It's a person. We don't separate body and soul. Becoming a person is not something that occurs in some type of developmental stage. Scripture teaches that those in the womb are persons in passages such as Luke 1, 41 to 44. Mary comes and she visits Elizabeth. You, many of you know this passage. You remember what, what happens. Elizabeth comes and she says, Behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. <laughs> the baby in my womb leapt for joy. <laughs> Evidently, he had expression. He had emotion. He leapt for joy. Have you seen? You, you can see this today. You want to see a, a baby have feelings and expressions? You probably don't want to see it. Because where I've seen it is an ultrasound where a baby is crying in the womb. In agony, in pain, in abortion. You think that's not a person? I would argue with that. 
We also see the fact that a baby is a person in the womb in Exodus 21, 22 to 23. God sets forth this law. It says, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, if there is harm, you shall pay life for life. They, the, the law established by God is not that, you know what, <laughs> she was pregnant, but it wasn't birthed yet, so don't worry about that fetus. No, that's a life. It's a life. Ironically, our own nation has similar laws. We do not gain value or personhood as though it were some type of developmental stage. A child is a child from the moment of conception. Nancy Piercy in her book, Love Thy Body, which I would highly recommend. If you're sitting here and you want to know more about the meaning of the person, how that's established, and you're willing to do a little hard work of a good book, or if you're sitting here today and you're listening and you go, I don't know if I agree with you. Read Love Thy Body by Nancy Piercy. She writes this, A Christian concept of personhood depends not on what I can do, but on who I am. That I am created in the image of God and that God has called me into existence and continues to know and love me. Human beings do not need to earn the right to be treated as creatures of great value. Our dignity is intrinsic, rooted in the fact that God made us, knows us, and loves us. We were created in his image. And the question that I think we have to ask today is are we a weeping people about the fact that life has become expendable in our day? Look at verse, chapter 2, verse 18 of Matthew. Verse 17, after the killing of all the male children, Matthew says, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Are we a weeping people? Are we a weeping church? Does the death of the unborn bring sorrow and lamentation? Does the murder of people in our nation cause us grief? Does the trading and trafficking of humans cause us to to be stirred deep within and to weep in our souls? Does it bother us or do we just flip the channel? Do we just scroll on through? Or do we see that and we weep and we mourn over the suffering and the death of innocent, vulnerable people in our nation? Does it bother us at all? Are we weeping? Has abortion just become some political platform that we argue about and we promote and we stand on and say, this candidate does or this candidate doesn't? Do we simply just, just push it as a platform? Or are we really grieved over it if we come, become so callous that it's just a political policy? Are we that callous about the plight of the vulnerable that we are not led to weep over them? May we never be a people who are not caused great sorrow and grief over the death of innocent, vulnerable people. So what do we do? What do we do? I think there's three things we can do as we close today. I think the first thing is we have to defend life. We defend life in the womb. We defend life at the end of life. We stand for and defend life. I, I, Proverbs 24 just struck me this week. I want to read it to you. In Proverbs 24, verse 10 to 12, we read this. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. 
hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, behold, we didn't know this. Does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? Listen, the challenge of our day, the adversity that we face where life is seen as expendable, it's no big deal. It doesn't even stir people around us. This is not a moment to shrink back. It's not a moment to be weak. It's a moment to stand firm and to take a stand for life. We must stand in adversity. We can't faint in the day of adversity. That means our strength is just small. It's in the day of adversity where your strength is shown, where you stand for the cause of life. You stand for the cause of the vulnerable. Ignorance is no excuse for watching the unborn be taken away to death. It's no excuse. We cannot choose ignorance. You think that's a silly statement? Choosing ignorance? Well, just look around you and see how many people in our culture just choose to remain ignorant. Why? Because then I don't have any responsibility. No, that is not the way we go. It's not the way we go. We cannot be those who choose ignorance. We cannot be those who watch as people stumble to slaughter because they've been sold a lie that abortion is the only solution. That it's just the way. It's the choice. It's what I should do. It's not the only solution. It's not the only solution. There's other solutions. They have to hear from God's people in a way that is gracious and kind and gentle and loving and merciful. That there are other solutions. There are other ways to deal with what's happened in your life. You didn't plan this. It wasn't what you wanted. This isn't a great situation. It's not a great circumstance. But thanks be to God that there are people in this church, there are people around the nation who will say, you know what, you don't want that baby, you don't love that baby. I want to love that baby, and I want that baby in my home. We have to be a people. We have to be a people who will speak grace and truth in those situations, who will lovingly come alongside those in difficult situations to defend life and protect life and are who, willing, who are willing to sacrifice for life. The second thing we can do is affirm God's image in every person. Simply affirm God's image in every person. It doesn't matter if the person is in the womb, out of the womb, white or black, rich or poor, healthy or disabled. Every person is created in God's image. No one is less worthy of God's grace or more, more worthy of God's grace. No one is beyond God's grace. We see that all men are created in God's image and we affirm that and their intrinsic worth and value. The third way I think we can respond that we must respond, is that we must proclaim hope, grace, and forgiveness in Christ. Hope, grace, and forgiveness in Christ. You know, he quotes Jeremiah 31, 15 here in verses 18 and 19. Do you know what else is found in Jeremiah 31? It's the announcement from God that he will establish a new covenant. <laughs> In chapter 31, verse 31 to 34, we read that he will establish a new covenant. That new covenant is established through the blood of Christ. <laughs> All through chapter 31, in fact, God is giving messages of hope in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of grief, in the midst of despair, in the midst of tragedy. He just keeps giving hope and hope and messages of hope and glimmers of hope until he comes to verse 31 and 34. And he says, I'm going to establish a new covenant. A new covenant in which we had the blessing of living in. So we have to hope in Christ. We have to look to Christ, trust Christ, 
depend on Christ? Are, are you today? Or is there someone sitting in here today or, or watching online that you, you're thinking through and weighing your options and considering abortion? I, I would contend to you to hope in Christ. Choose life. Choose life. Hope in Christ. There are other options. Value life. Defend life. Choose Christ. Maybe, maybe you're sitting here today and you've experienced abortion. That's in your past. And you, you deal with the grief and, and the sorrow and the regret. And this is a hard moment for you. You're racked with sorrow. And you, you have to know, you have to know forgiveness in Christ. Know the grace of Christ. Know the healing that is in Christ. Trust Christ. Look to Him. Lean on Him. The one who forgives freely. Who heals fully. Who redeems completely. Loves you relentlessly. Know Christ, look to Christ, trust Christ, rest in Christ, know His love and His mercy today. We can't go on as though life is expendable. We can't choose to turn a blind eye. We can't be those people who just shout and heat condemnation. We are the people of God who are called to be merciful as He is merciful, who are called to declare the hope that is in Christ, the grace that is in Christ, the forgiveness that is in Christ. And we are the people who are called to choose life and to stand for life and defend life and to affirm God's image in every person. Let's pray.